Well, I was sick last week. It's good to be back for myself. I, I uh, promptly got a cold and decided to share it with my whole family except for Katie. So um, the girls are doing better. It's good to be back. And we're back in the Gospel of John. But before we start, I want to ask you some questions here. Are you competitive? Anyone here competitive? Are you the type of person, no, this is what I mean by competitive, the type of person that when you sit down for a game or activity, you switch into that mode of seek, kill, and destroy. And you're out for blood, you know? You know those people, right? I used to be that way. I'm much more relaxed in that way. But a few months ago, I, I, I received some rather interesting insight to our pastoral team. We decided as pastors to kind of get together on a monthly basis to have dinner together. And so the first time was our house. And so we had Pastor Ryan and his wife Carly and then Pastor John and his wife Rebecca come over for dinner. And the goal was to share a meal and just talk about life, not necessarily ministry. And uh, so we wanted to encourage each other, have a good time. And, And it was going well. You know, the plan was to sit down and eat. And so we had our bellies full and dessert served, and, and we thought we'll play a game together. And earlier in the day, Pastor Ryan said, hey, do you mind if I bring some games over? And I thought, well, sure, yeah. And I know he likes games, so bring some over. I didn't really know what I was signing up for. So we began, and, and uh, the game was Bonanza. It's a card game about uh, beans, and you trade cards and plant beans and all these things. And Katie and I had played it. We've done it for a number of years. And so we knew the rules, but Pastor John and Rebecca didn't. And so um, Ryan, Pastor Ryan took great care to explain the rules, every rule meticulously. And I knew I was in trouble at that point. So he, he comes and he starts going through it. And so John gets, you know, going and I'm realizing as this game goes on that Ryan's out for blood. He is not leaving unless he wins. And he's good at these games, right? I mean, Pat, you're sitting there smiling. You know this, right? And, you know, at some point in the game, I'm realizing I need to call someone because I think Ryan needs biblical counseling because it was just really getting really advanced. But he just, and and Ryan's kind of an even keel kind of guy. I love talking about him because he's not here to defend himself this morning. He's with the youth. Just so you know, parents, to let your kids go with a youth retreat. Could be competitive, I'm not sure. But um, he, he really loved games and loves to win, and he does well at it. And I, I wondered, though, in the midst of it, aren't you that way? You know, I asked the elders at the end of the elder meeting, I said, so how many of you guys are competitive? And so they all kind of like sheepishly looked down, you know, because I think everyone has that in them in some way, shape, or form. So Pat, I ask of the Petersons, which I learned they're very competitive, who's the most competitive between Ryan, Aaron, and Eric? I am. Yeah, see, All I needed was that opportunity, and he was going to show us for us right here this morning. Well, if you're honest with yourself this morning, you're competitive in some way. And maybe it's a little different than that. But you like to win. You like to have a spotlight on you at some point in some way. You know, this seems to be a common trait with us humans. You know, sometimes, though, competitiveness comes out in different ways. Maybe you've begrudged another person who's received a blessing that you didn't get. Perhaps another man has been given a salary increase or a generous bonus and now has money that you thought you earned, that you deserved. Perhaps someone else has been given a position of responsibility at work or even at church, something that you looked forward to and thought you deserved and now you resent that they have it and you don't. They've been blessed and you react with envy and resentment. 
And it's for good reason that in the Ten Commandments, they end with a warning against coveting. For it's the desire of our hearts that leads us into that sin. Envy is a deeply private but destructive form of covetousness. Aquinas gave us a great definition of envy. He says, it is sorrow at another's good. Os Guinness, another author, wrote about envy. He says, envy enters when seeing someone else's happiness or success, we feel ourselves called into question. Then out of, out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring the other person down to our level by word or deed. They belittle us by their success, we feel. We should bring them down to their desired level. Envy helps us to feel better. Full-blown full envy, in short, is dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. So covetousness, envy, competitiveness are all traits of all of us as humans. And this morning, as we get into John chapter 3, John the Baptist has something to say about this competitiveness. He has something to say about those sinful responses. So as we continue, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Follow with me as I read. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptized in Aon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Well, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word this morning. And we've had the privilege of worshiping together in song and, and the reading of your word and giving back to you. And now, Father, we have the opportunity to worship you through the preaching of your word. I pray that our hearts and our minds will be focused upon you, that you would allow all the distractions that are in our lives right now to we put on hold in the midst of this, that we bring the issues that we have in our life to you and our time as we look into your word. Father, as we look into this response from John the Baptist, give us clarity and understanding as he's, as he's questioned about his ministry and as he seeks to answer those questions and point people away from himself, give us understanding 
Help us to understand his ministry and ours and this world. And may you receive all the honor and glory through this time. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage this morning, I have three basic points. And it's really the question that that John has been given, okay? The question to him and then his answer, his response. And then the last is the reason. The reason for all of it. The reason for his ministry. The reason why he's here. So first is the question of verse 22. So just when you think John the Baptist is, is outside of the scene, that he's done in, in, in John's gospel, no, he, he pops back in. He's back into the story. And f- so following the exchange with Nicodemus, Jesus now moves into the Judean countryside. And he's now in a less populated area, but still ministry is happening and people are being baptized. Actually, he's not baptizing anyone. In chapter 4, verse 2, it says that his disciples are doing the baptizing. And so they move into this area, they're, they're baptizing here in verse 22 and on. And, but across from the Jordan, there is John the Baptist within view, within earshot, and he's baptizing too with his disciples along for the ride. And so as the scene unfolds here in this, this last half of the chapter, a dispute arises, an issue comes up. And I can imagine the discussion going something like this on, on the side of the river with John the Baptist and, and his disciples asking, hey, John, you know, you're doing a lot of baptisms here, but it doesn't seem like it's working. It doesn't seem like you're really doing anything of significance. Maybe you're just giving them a bath. Because there's a much bigger group on the other side, and people are going to that guy that you mentioned earlier. Lots of people. He seems to be drawing a bigger crowd, John. Are you sure you're doing this right? Are you sure you know how to do baptisms, John? Are your baptisms actually working? Because it may be his are working. You know, what's the deal, John? Everyone's going to him. They're not coming here. And it seems from the outside that his followers are looking to bait him into the discussion about the worthiness of his ministry versus Jesus' ministry. I mean, come on, on, John. Isn't isn't what you're doing here important? Isn't, Isn't it really important? You know, and it would seem to John's followers that Jesus is trying to overshadow him. Do you, know, do you know what it means to overshadow? It's a term to describe something that appears more prominent or more important. To overshadow something is to say it's more significant. And Jesus is overshadowing John. And before you raise the that's not fair flag and start waving it around, John is saying, good. That's the way it should go. Jesus is better than John. Jesus is superior to John. And John's followers recognize this, and, and, and they're, they're, they're kind of, they're bothered by it. It doesn't sit well with them. I mean, shouldn't John be enthusiastic for ministry? Shouldn't he strive to have the numbers, the responses, the commitments to God just the same? But now he's being overshadowed, and everything about the situation is bothering them, but is perfectly fine with John the Baptist. You know, this, this issue here that we see and that we see the response of John the Baptist that we'll get into seems to fly in the face of those that seek to be ambitious in life. You know, having ambition for life and for our work isn't a bad thing. Even having ambition for ministry isn't bad, as long as you keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? That's a question you need to ask yourself a lot in life. What is the main thing? It's the gospel. It's God's work. It's Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. 
And if we're ambitious for those things in our life, things will go well. But sometimes ambition begins to stink. It begins to, to smell sour, like milk that you look at and think it looks okay until you take the lid off and realize it's not okay. Being ambitious can quickly and unwillingly become sour. In the spring of 1814, Timothy Dwight, a grandson of Jonathan Edwards, and the president of Yale College was giving a baccalaureate address to the Yale graduating class. And the, the name of this address was On the Love of Distinction. And he pointed out an issue that could arise in the path to their success as they're graduating and going into this world, like something that could curdle the, the milk of their soon-to-be achievement. And this is, what he, this is what he said. Wickedness can in no other form become more intense, nor its plans more vast, nor its obstinacy more enduring, nor its destruction more extensive or more dreadful than the love of distinction. His warning is ever more relevant for us here this morning. This, this should have appeal for all of us here in this place, whether you're pursuing motherhood, the pastorate, being an iron worker, being an electrician, being a fireman, being the grandma of the year or the best student you can. You have the temptation to set yourself apart from everyone else and sometimes at the expense of everyone else, to have the spotlight on yourself. The, the love of distinction declares that the highest joy and fulfillment will come to a man or woman who can achieve the greatest accomplishment, the distinction of their self from everyone else. And Dwight continued, he says, among all the passions which, which mislead, endanger, and harass the mind, none is more hostile to its peace, none more blind, none more delirious than the love of distinction. Selfishness is in its nature little and base, but no passion and no pursuits are more absolutely selfish than the love of distinction. One self is here the sole object, and then in this object, all the labors, pursuits, and wishes terminate. It's serious words to these graduates that the love of distinction will never have a purpose or a person in mind besides themselves. The love of distinction has a single focus on being remembered for being the best, for being first. You know, sometimes it looks innocent enough, but folks, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It is what brought death to Adam and Eve. It is what brought the final end to Satan and him getting kicked out of heaven. Folks, apart from God, if your lives are striving for approval from school, from bosses, from our bank accounts, from our possessions, it is a love of distinction. In and of myself, I strive to be applauded, to be esteemed by someone else. We all live for praise in some way. And selfish ambition attempts big things simply because it craves the moment of celebration for our work. And selfish ambition is most times a veiled attempt to get that attaboy that we so desperately want. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we really desire that this world would exist to worship us. But Jesus, Jesus brings some explosive news to us this morning in our self-absorbed world. He says our search for approval is over because through Christ, we have all the approval we'll ever need. The selfish ambition stuff is, is serious and John the Baptist wants nothing to do with it. He recognizes his place in this world and strives to serve God with his whole life. 
Church, if, if because of Christ's righteousness, which has been transferred to us through his death on the cross, all of our time and energy we have spent trying to achieve approval to validate our existence in this world can now be redirected to God and to live for his glory and not our own. And John the Baptist understands this. And now he's going to teach his disciples yet again of why they should be living the way they should be living. And he wants to direct them away from himself to Christ. And so in verse 27, he gives, he gives the answer to this question of, of this doesn't seem fair, John. He has a bigger crowd over there. What are you gonna do about this? Well, John answers there in verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And I'm sure the temptation was just as strong with John the Baptist as it is with us when faced with the decision to absorb praise for ourselves. And John is standing there with his entourage, that is, standing with him, and they begin to become jealous for the praise that they think he deserves, for the prestige, and they're, they're seemingly beginning to criticize those that are experiencing Lord's blessing instead of him. You know, I've seen the incredible danger of beginning to read your own press clippings, beginning to think that you are the best thing since sliced bread. And God forbid any of us gather around ourselves an entourage of people that are there to continually pump us up, to pump us up with praise and, and to say, look at him. Folks, we are not the show. John says, I'm not the main event. And John says, no one can receive one single thing unless God gives it. And so I have a question. Do you believe this? Really, do you believe this? I'm asking genuinely, do you believe that all you have, that all you are, that all you do is a result of God's grace and work in your life? Do you believe this? And I want to challenge you in this as it's challenged me this week because if we, if we truly believe this, then our response to injustice, our response to unfairness, to downright bad things happening in our life would drastically change. How do you fare when someone else has success and you don't? What fills your heart when things go poorly in your life? You know, these are our litmus tests to where our ambitions really lie. And do you know what the antidote, John gives it here. Do you know what the antidote for selfish ambition is? He says, remember where it all came from. Remember where it all came from. If you have great gifts for serving or a mind that is able to comprehend deep truths and the ability to manage people well, remember it was given to you by God. Even if you have modest gifts, maybe you think you're not that great just a mediocre ability to work well. This too was given to you by God. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If you have gifts, they came to you from God. If you're successful, it's because of God's grace in your life. If your kids can sit quietly in the service don't begin to beam with pride. Praise the Lord for his work in their lives. If your business takes off and you're a successful manager, it's because God gave you the ability and God gave you the opportunity to serve him in this way. But even if you don't have those things, 
even if things aren't going that well. Don't allow your heart to race to this fairness question either. Stop comparing yourself to others and their success. Don't be envious of others. God is still in the midst. God is still in the one directing and redirecting and giving you all that you need. God doesn't make mistakes. All that we have has come from God and it's come for his glory. You know, sometimes God places us in a position where we need to serve others and nothing more removes this self-love than serving other people who delight in treating you like a slave. Do you realize that God puts you in those positions sometimes to root out areas in your heart that have slipped into this selfish ambition? God isn't this cruel taskmaster and and, and trying to place those situations and putting you under those people that don't appreciate your work. He might just need your heart and right alignment again back to his will. And this is what John is doing to his disciples. He's taking their hearts and redirecting it back to the main thing. And John did not want them to miss the main point, the main thing. And in verse 28, he's, he's emphatic again. He said this already. He's, he's doing it again. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He is again pointing them back to the fact that he is not the main event. But the main event is here. It's Jesus. And, and can I share something scary that I found this week in the study of this? People didn't listen to John. In Acts 19, 1 through 7, it tells of a group of people in Ephesus who were followers of John the Baptist, and they did not believe in Jesus Christ. There's further post-apostolic evidence that informs us that there were more communities that existed who denied Christ and elevated John the Baptist. Do you know what, though? It still happens today. There are still people, worshipers out there. There are pastor worshipers. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've heard it. And it makes me sick to my stomach. And John the Baptist is a testament for us here this morning that the only one worthy of our full loyalty is Jesus Christ. He is the only one. And he wants to properly put a clear understanding into the listeners that are surrounded by him saying, things don't seem fair, John. He's saying, that's not my position. John MacArthur has said, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. Boy, I need that reminder on a weekly basis. And so do you. If you're serving God in any way, shape, or form, Remind yourselves of this. The measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow you, but how many people follow Christ through your ministry. So don't be, don't be fooled into thinking that people should follow you, that you should do whatever you say. If we're not billboards for Jesus, we're wrong. And so our lives, as I said a number of weeks ago, we're microphones. We, we, we are voices to point people away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. And John's, he's not done yet, okay? He's gonna further emphasize this. Verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The church 
is for Jesus Christ, not John the Baptist. And he's clear. The one who has the bride is a bridegroom. It seems clear, doesn't it? And says, he said, then he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John is saying to us, I am just the best man. Do any of you go to weddings to see the best man? Answer honestly. I've been the best man twice. No one cared to talk to me. I was in one picture just because they had to have a picture of the best man. I didn't have any focus on me whatsoever. And John's saying, it's not about me. I'm the best man. The focus is not on me. And what's the job of the best man now is, is to serve. I loved serving in that. Two, two brothers, uh, uh, Christians who love the Lord. And I remember those days very clearly and, and saying, I'll do whatever you need me to do, man, because I wanted that day to go well for them. And it was a joy to serve in that way. It had nothing to do with me. It had all to do about that wedding ceremony. And in this culture, the friend of the bridegroom was the one who worked to make the wedding ceremony happen, to make sure it was going to happen without any flaws or any issues. That was his job. He was responsible, furthermore, for bringing the bride to the ceremony and working to make things work smoothly. He had a huge job. And John is saying, I am just the friend of the bridegroom. I am just the best man. My job is to get them together and then celebrate when it happens. So we, we can understand now his response in verse 29, right? Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. His job is done. He's been the faithful messenger for Christ, calling people to follow him. And he's reflecting back on that, that my joy is now complete because I did what the Father had for me to do. He came with a mission and the bridegroom has come for the bride. And he is happy. And the main point for, for all of this section really is this. Are you ready? It's that Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior. John says in verse 30, and this is one that is shared a lot, right? Athletes write this on their shoes and all sorts of people talk about it. But John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Folks, Anytime you see the word must, pay attention. This is important. John says this has to happen. It is not an option. It's the only option. And this is the third mention of this word must in the chapter. In verse 7, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And now in verse 30, he must increase, and I must decrease. And we should strive to have the same response as John the Baptist. Folks, you can never make too much of Jesus Christ. Our ideas, our desires, our, our hopes for outreach, for ministry, for growth can easily become too consumed. We can have never too high a thought of Jesus Christ. We can never love Jesus Christ too much. We can never think of Jesus Christ too much. We can never talk about Jesus Christ too much. We can never praise Jesus Christ too much. 
We can never share the hope that we have through Jesus Christ too much. And I pray that we will echo the words of John the Baptist loudly and unashamedly. He must increase. I must decrease. He needs to be bigger. I need to be smaller. He needs to be louder and I need to be quieter. He needs to be praised and I need to be the one praising him. He needs to be our all-consuming passion and I need to forget myself in light of him. Here's the simple truth, people. The more your life is about you, the more miserable and despondent and gloomy and sad you will be as a person. When Jesus becomes greater in your world than in this world, and you become lesser, your joy increases. It's simple. I mean, look again at verse 29. John gives us the answer, right? The one who has the bride as the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and then get this. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is saying to myself and to you this morning that this life is not about you. Your job on earth is to point people to Jesus Christ. He gets the glory, not you. He gets the praise, not you. He gets to be number one, not you. So whether your life is going well or you're in the midst of suffering, your job is to point people to Jesus Christ. And folks, when we understand this as the body of Christ, joy will come. Christians who are useful and who will make a difference in this world are the ones who are resolved to make very little of themselves so that Christ will be exalted, so that he will be praised, so that he will be followed. And we should strive for true humility in this life. Humility is, is not a mask that we wear because we have to or to earn some sort of blessing. No, humility is the key to true greatness, to, to having real joy in this life. A.W. Tozer once wrote about humility, and I feel it's appropriate for us. He says, true humility is a healthy thing. The humble man accepts the truth about himself. He believes that in his fallen nature dwells no good thing. He acknowledges that apart from God, he is nothing, has nothing, knows nothing, and can do nothing. But this knowledge does not discourage him, for he knows also that in Christ, he is somebody. He knows that he is dearer to God than the apple of his eye, and that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That is, he can do all that lies within the will of God for him to do. When this belief becomes so much a part of a man that it operates as a kind of unconscious reflex, the emphasis of his life shifts from self to Christ, where it should have been in the first place, and he is thus set free to serve his generation by the will of God without the thousands of hindrances he knew before. We must decrease, John says. John recognizes this about himself. He says, I, I need to decrease. There's there's no need for this voice and this capacity any longer. What's the use of the moon when the sun is rising and the light has come 
But John isn't finished yet with his teaching. He's not done yet of of going even deeper about the reason for his ministry. And there's some confusion as I studied this, and this might not matter to you that much, and that's okay, of whether John continues to speak here because the quotation marks end at verse 30. Uh, Whether in the Greek, we don't know. It's if it's John the Baptist speaking or John the gospel writer, I don't really care. It sounds like John the Baptist, so I believe it's him. And he continues, and he wants to display and to teach and to show the reason for his ministry. And there's a few things I want you to notice here in verses 31 through 36. The first is that Jesus is uniquely God. Second is Jesus has authority. And third is the gospel must be obeyed. So look at these verses, verses 31 and through the end of the chapter. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives his spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is uniquely God. You know, there's many in our world that do not believe that Jesus is any different than any other religious leader. They ask, what what makes Jesus so different? Aren't all religious leaders basically the same, whether Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or a guru? Aren't they all the same? John's saying, no. All of scripture says no. They are not the same. Jesus Christ is far superior. Jesus Christ is the very son of God. He is truth coming to earth from heaven. And not only is Jesus different than every other kind of spiritual leader, his message is very different. People say, well, aren't all religions basically the same? Isn't the same message? You know, the common opinion in our world today is that they're all the same because people really don't want to face the unique message of Jesus Christ. They do not want to explore the truth claims of Jesus, so they just assume that he's just the same as everyone else. That's why John writes this, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Every other religious teacher comes from the vantage point of earth. And so at the very beginning, their message lacks any power. And every false religion comes to the starting line the same way, whether Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or Roman Catholicism, they all say that to come to God, you at least have to be good, a little good, somewhat good. You have to somehow merit your entry into heaven, the afterlife. But Jesus teaches something drastically different than John chapter 3. Nicodemus, he thought he was good. Jesus says, you must be born again. The only way for anyone to be saved is for the Son of Man to be lifted up, it says in verse 14, which is talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus teaches that salvation is through faith, not of works. And from an earthly mind, they can't imagine this. This is revolutionary to life, right? It establishes a difference between Christianity and every other religion. 
If Jesus is who he says he is, he is uniquely God, then his message is the only true message and must be accepted to the exclusion of all other messages. If Jesus is, is not what he says he is, then he's an incredible fraud who should be rejected. A Christian then is someone who has seen and heard and believed the truth of Jesus Christ and God's word and accepts him to the complete exclusion to every other possible savior or Lord in this world. Being a Christian means you are exclusive. But the world doesn't want exclusivity. When it comes to the eternal choices, they want many options. But John says, whoever receives this testimony, his testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. You cannot believe that God is true and that God is real and God is good and reject Jesus Christ. If God is true, then Christ is true and you must believe in him. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're saying that God is a liar. This is also what John writes in 1 John 5.10. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. You don't have the right to reject Christ and believe that God is true. If God is truth, Christ is the answer. And furthermore, look at this passage. The Trinity dwells within him. Verse 34, for he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. God gives all to Jesus. He gives himself completely, the spirit without any limit. He has the spirit dwelling within himself without boundary, without border. He has it all. Jesus is uniquely God and Jesus also has authority. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus doesn't need to ask for our permission. He's been given all authority from heaven. And he says the Father loves the Son. What a glorious thought. The Father loves the Son. John Calvin wrote concerning this. He says the love here spoken of is that peculiar love of God, which beginning with the Son flows from him to all the creatures. For that love with which embracing his son, he embraces us also in him, leads him to communicate all his benefits to us by his hand. So what he means there is because the, the father loves the son, we too know the love of the father. The last thing I want you to see here in verse 36 is that the gospel must be obeyed. The gospel must be obeyed some of the most sobering words written here in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The gospel is a command. Why does he go from believing in the Son to obeying? Simply because to believe in the Son is a command to do. Folks, the gospel is a command. It's it's not a suggestion. It's a command. If you do not believe in the Son, you are disobeying the command. And John is clear here. Those who do not obey the Son, they will not see life. They will not experience life. 
They will not have life, but the wrath of God remains on them. So you have a choice, either eternal life or eternal wrath. And I want you to listen because this is of great importance this morning. You need to understand that if you're not in Christ here this morning, then the wrath of God remains on you. You were born in this world a sinner and a desperate need for a savior. And this, this is why Jesus Christ came. And God brought you here this morning at this place, at this hour, at this moment to hear this gospel message. If you do not believe in the Son, you will not see eternal life, and your life will end in futile, worthless Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ came so that we could have life. Verse 36 are the very last words of John the Baptist. He finishes his ministry and he'll be killed for his faith. If you read Matthew 14, you'd read about the story of John who, who is already in prison and that's why he mentions there in verse 24. It hadn't happened yet, but John's in prison and Herod is sinning. In fact, he marries his brother's wife and John says, you, you can't do that. You have sinned against the holy God, and Herod doesn't like that. So Herodias, the new wife, doesn't like John. He's preaching against their sinful lifestyle. And so in the midst of all this, Herodias' daughter dances before the Herod, and Herod likes it. And because he's drinking, and because he doesn't want to displease his party, he says, whatever you want, I'll give to you. And Herodias at that moment says, I know what I want. John the Baptist's head. And because the Herod is so worried about what people think of him, he agrees. And John is killed. But as we read in verse 36, he ends his ministry as a gospel preacher. He understood his job. He didn't want to compete with Jesus. He had been sent before Jesus to proclaim him. I pray that we are people that don't compete against Christ, but realize our position, our privilege, that we have to serve him, that we do it with all of our life. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, the cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of divine presence Worshiping God and communing with him all the day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. I read a very instructing and encouraging story this week as I finished my study in one of my commentaries by Richard Phillips. And he recounts a story of some 
American Christians many years ago who visited England, London in particular. And as they left for the week, their friends said, you, there's two preachers you need to visit years ago. And you can probably guess who one of them were, right? Charles Spurgeon, I quote him a lot. And Joseph Parker, two Christians with thriving churches in London. And, and the friends said, go here and preach and bring us back a report of what ministry looks like. And so this is what he writes. On Sunday morning, they went to hear Joseph Parker, a man famed for his eloquent oratory. And as they departed from the service, one of them exclaimed to the other, I do declare it must be said, for there's no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever was. And the group longed to come back to hear Parker in the evening, but then they remembered that their friends would ask them about Spurgeon as well. So that night, they attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was preaching. And as they departed, speaking in marvelous terms, they said, I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that the world has ever heard. I pray that the Lord will see that in us as we leave this place. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Where would we be without it? You've given us so much, God. We have the privilege of owning your word and reading it and learning about you. And Father, I am guilty of not doing it enough. I feel like there's so much more yet to learn, to spend time with you. And Father, I pray that for those that are seated here, that we yearn to learn more about you. As we leave this place, we identify ourselves as Christians. Father, I pray that we do that and that it brings honor and glory to your name and not shame. God, help us. Give us grace. Give us strength. Father, I think of those here this morning that are in the midst of difficulty in life. Some have been thrown a curveball in the last few weeks. Their job is not going well or they've lost their job. People are hurting, relationships are struggling. Some have sickness, some have cancer. And in the midst of all these struggles, God, our temptation is to forget about you, to, to walk away from our daily communion with you, to try to deal with our issues. And Father, we have it all backwards. I pray that we would run to you in the midst of struggles, of pain, of difficulties, of confusions. I, I pray that we would remember and remind ourselves that we must decrease and you must increase in all of our lives. Father, help us to glorify you by our words, by our actions, by our life. May people come in contact with us and see Jesus in some way. 
May we speak of you. May we give testimony of who you are and what you're doing. May we be billboards and microphones pointing people away from ourselves into your son. Help us, Father. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.